Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today, we'll be continuing our series in Acts. We're in the book of Acts this morning, and uh, what a journey it's been so far. Uh, I love that our church uh, decided to go through the book of Acts because we get to see uh, a moment in church history where the Holy Spirit was moving, the church was brand new, Things were exploding, things were moving, and what an exciting journey it is so we can, uh, you know, adapt some of the things that worked really well for the Church of Acts into our own congregation. And what I love about the book of Acts is it starts with such a powerful commissioning by Jesus. Check this out. He says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He commissions us with his power. I love that. I'm not a strong guy. So when, uh, you know, I found this religion where Jesus is going, this God of the universe is going, hey man, I want to give you my power. But the power is not just for you. It's so that the testimony of what I accomplished on the cross might go and reach everybody. Just as it's impacted your life at 18 years old, my heart is that it would impact the whole world. And this is his plan. It's such an exciting time. And it just starts steamrolling from here. We see, uh, we see this Pentecost then happens. The Holy Spirit that was promised comes and it fills the lives of the followers of Jesus. And they're doing crazy stuff, man. They're speaking in tongues. Miracles are happening. In fact, it takes, the Holy Spirit transformed Peter's life in an amazing way. Remember Pete? Remember a month ago, chronologically, when he's going, I don't know Jesus. I mean, he just spent time with Jesus, his whole ministry I don't know Jesus, he says it three times, and he even cusses, man, you can't cuss in church, but Peter cusses denouncing Jesus Christ. Then everything changes. Why? The Holy Spirit empowers him. That power that Jesus is talking about shows up. Check this out. Peter turns into a Baptist when everybody around him is going, man, look at the Christians, they're drunk with sweet wine. Peter goes, you're crazy. We're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. And then he gives this sermon like I said, like a Baptist, as he says, listen, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man that was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He goes, you nailed him to the cross. You knew everything about him. You saw him. You saw him die on the cross. And dude, you even saw him rise again from the dead. And you're tripping out on us right now? You're the ones who nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. That's a transformation. From denying Jesus to preaching like a Baptist, that's powerful transformation. And then he says this, hey, you gotta repent. You gotta turn from your wicked ways. You gotta believe in him. And at that sermon, the response was 3,000 people joined the church. That's power. That's power. And that continues. And the church continues to grow. And it's just, like I said, it's steamrolling. And the cool thing about it is that even persecution doesn't stop it. We see that some of these dudes were thrown in prison. Doesn't stop it. It enhances it. Wait till next week when we're in Acts chapter 16. When the boys are thrown in prison, they're just singing songs, worshiping Jesus, and the whole place gets saved. It's incredible. So imprisonment doesn't stop it. Death doesn't even stop it. They start killing the dudes. Stephen, we just just read about him a couple chapters ago. He was offed 
because he was a follower of Jesus Christ and he spoke out against it and it doesn't stop the movement. It just keeps going. It's incredible, incredible. So then we pick up in Acts chapter 15 and guess what? We gotta pump the brakes a little bit. It slows down. Why? Well, check this out. Acts 15 verse one says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. So, imprisonment doesn't stop it. Death doesn't stop it. But somehow the religious figure out how to stop it. And this ends the first missionary journey and they're, they're, they're putting the brakes on and they're gonna have to deal with this question from the Jews, the Judaizers. And we're gonna have to address this pretty much the whole chapter. So let's pray and we'll dive in this morning. God, we're 2,000 years removed from this story. So by your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was so powerful through this whole text, we ask and invite you to fill us with your Holy Spirit right now, God. That you would ordain my thoughts and anoint my lips as I handle your word. God, may I do so accurately. May it be honoring unto you alone. May you expand us, grow us, encourage us today by your word. We thank you that it's alive, it's living, it's active. So prove it to us today. Show us, Lord, your goodness. We pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in Acts chapter 15, I've kind of broken it up into three deals here. The first one being the law, okay? The first five verses, we're going we're gonna to see the law. The Judaizers are trying to say, hey, we've got some questions. They need addressing, and we're going to look at that. And then Acts chapter 15, 6 through 19, we're going to see the gospel. Praise God. It's going to come in right behind it. It's going to sort things out, as it always does. And then we're going to close out with the fellowship of believers. Okay, how do Jews and Gentiles, how do we get along? How do we do this thing called church? We've got some disagreements. Is that okay? And can we move forward in solidarity and in unity? And so to begin, we look at this first interaction. It says some men or certain people, and we know this to be Christian Jews. These are the Judaizers. In Galatians, Paul calls them the troublemakers. And we also know them to be the Pharisees, whose understanding was this, that they were called covenant community of faith, that they were the called covenant community of faith. That was their understanding. Their understanding was also that they must obey the moral and ritual law of Moses. The moral law being the Ten Commandments, the ritual law being, hey man, you must be circumcised to be saved. Also, you got to do all these ritualistic things like you know, go through certain washing ceremonies before you eat and before you worship. You've got, a, uh, you've got strict dietary laws and you have to completely abstain from anything with blood. So this was their understanding. And for a minute, let's just sympathize with them because they've got the Old Testament. They've got a long history of, of ping-ponging between following Yahweh faithfully and the, the blessings that, that, that came to be because of that. And then also disobedience when they abandoned the law and they did things their way and they, they dove into idol worship and all those sorts of things and the ramifications that came with it. And so they have a long history of saying, hey man, we should trust the law. We should trust what God says, what God's told us to do. But now that Jesus has come, the Messiah, he's changed everything. 
And because of that, his Holy Spirit's come and filled these Gentiles. And now instead of one or two trickling in, you know, like a Rahab or, you know, whoever coming into the church, we've got 3,000 people who are new. (laughs) This is massive. And so culture's shifting, culture's changing as it should when the Holy Spirit comes. But they're going, wait a minute. And so some of their, uh, their primary argument is this, that the Gentiles were not saved because they weren't Jews. And Paul isn't having it. Check it out. We'll, we'll, we'll just read these first couple of verses. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church them on their way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they were told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad when they came to Jerusalem. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Verse 5. Then some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles, again, must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And so Paul's not having it. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we're not, we're not going down this road again. And he says that he sharply disputed them. He entered into debate with them. And as Christians, whenever we hear this, we're going, oh, debate's just a bad thing inside the church. We're not good at debating We're really, really, really bad at it. So when it says that he had a sharp debate with them, we just kind of go, ugh. Again, we, we, you know, we all across the board, we all have the commonality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all do, right? But as time goes on in the believer's life, we, we add things to it. We add our politics. We add our theologies. And what does that accomplish? It accomplishes nothing but division. So anytime that we try to find common ground on anything other than the gospel, it's pretty nuclear. Am I right? Case in point, have you guys ever met a Christian in the wild? Like at the grocery store or, you know, and you're like, you're checking out and, and uh, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody in the, in the, like, oh, where did you find the eggs? Like, oh, on aisle four and they're on sale. What a blessing. A blessing? What do you mean? Are, are you a believer? I am. Oh my gosh. You see, I moved from Seattle. Seattle has seven Christians in the whole city. So when I moved to Southern California, I'm like, man, this is the promised land. Everyone's saved. And there are a lot of Christian conversations out in the wild. It was amazing. But then what happens is the conversation goes on. Well, where do you go to church? Well, oh, I go to the Lutheran church over here. Oh. So, and inside you're going, huh. You really think that sprinkling a little water on some baby's forehead is going to baptize them? And we start, we start immediately go to that internal debate, and then oftentimes it goes to an external debate. And at the end of the day, you have more in common with your atheist check stand attendant than you do with another brother and sister from the faith. Isn't that crazy? But that's what we do. So anytime we see debate, we're going, oh no, can this be a win? Who knows? Let's find out. So the debate here... Uh, was centered around circumcision. And we know that God gave uh, circumcision uh, to, in the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis 17. Uh, remember when Abraham was 99, God promised that he would be the father of many nations. Abe laughed in his face. Jesus, uh, it, or God, then, um, you know, he, he allows Sarah to become pregnant with Isaac. 
It concludes with Father Abraham being the great-grandfather of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then Moses circumcised the dudes who crossed over from the Jordan to the promised land, a symbol of consecration to God's law and his way, his plan. It set them apart. It also set them apart, consecrated them from slavery and from the wilderness. He says this is a new chapter, new day, and it was setting them apart. We know that's a symbolic ritual, a cutting away the flesh, something that, um, although the ritual has, has left the, the church uh, for the most part, um, the spirit of which uh, this is all talking about doesn't because we know that the spirit is set against the flesh and the flesh is set against the spirit. We read that in the New Testament. And so this cutting away of the flesh is symbolic to say, listen, we're gonna, we as believers must consecrate ourselves from the ways of my sinful flesh and my sinful nature and devote myself to Yahweh, devote myself to the one who has died for me, who loves me, and I'm gonna trust him over my ways. So that's where we pick up. And so we have the moral and the ritualistic law. It was given to the Jews for this reason, not so that by them they might, by the laws, they might be saved, but that they would realize that there is no salvation in themselves. That's what the law, all these rules and regulations really prove to show. It's not that by following each one, you get to heaven. No, no, no. It's to expose the fact that we are full of flesh. We are full of sin, and there's no way to uphold everything. Even the Ten Commandments, we fall short. Do you believe me? Just walk through them and just go really honestly looking internally at my heart. Do I really, am I really above reproach in all these areas? It's just, that's, this is the great neutralizer. This is what puts us all level at the foot of the cross. Okay, and then not only that, they add on like 600 plus to, uh, to, um, to all the ritual laws. So with that, we have to have some good news at some point because um, this is bad news for us Gentiles uh, living uh, in this time, in this age. So verse six, it picks up. The apostles and the elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And so we see three testimonies arise uh, to address this question. Is circumcision mandatory for salvation? Do the Gentiles have to follow the law? And so the first one to go is Peter. Now, the interesting thing in Galatians, which coincides with this passage, in Galatians, Paul's talking about disputing greatly with Peter because he had been led astray by this, this group who's um, claiming that circumcision is a requirement for salvation. And so he had been led astray. It even says that Barnabas at the same time was led astray. And so as Paul is penning this letter to the Galatians, I believe it's at the very same time as this debate was starting, he's saying, I had to correct Peter. I had to correct Barnabas. And he does so by reminding them of the gospel. Oh yeah, you're right. And so what we learn from this is that even guys like Peter and Barnabas, they get led astray by things that aren't necessarily true or secondary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul, and this is why we study his epistles so much in the church today, it's because he's so good at reminding the church of the simplicity of the gospel. He does such a good job saying, hey man, it's all about Jesus. We're gonna look at that in a second. But we pick up with Peter and Peter begins to defend the gospel here says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. 
God who knows the heart showed up and he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them. And just as he did so, he made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to put God, to, to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So Peter has two points and three reminders. The first point is this. He's saying, what about Cornelius? Remember a few chapters ago, Cornelius? There was nothing ritualistic happening in his conversion, only faith in Jesus Christ. So that's his first proposition. He's saying, what about Cornelius? Why, why wasn't he, why didn't he have to get circumcised? And so they begin to scratch their heads. His second point is this. Are we really going to make the Gentiles adhere to something that we have not been able to live up to ourselves? He goes, I'm just going to call it out. It's like, we're hypocrites if we're going to do that. If we're going to say, hey, if you want to follow Jesus, it's got to look like this. Shouldn't we look like that? And you and I both know that we don't look like that. We're not able to live up to that. It's too heavy of a burden. And we know what the law is set out to accomplish. We know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And we know that his death, burial, and resurrection is what brings us into fellowship with him and to each other. So why are we going to make it about anything more? Ah, so that provokes three reminders. In verse six, his first reminder is this, that he reminds them of God's gift of salvation for the Gentiles. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and be saved. He's saying, listen, you guys knew this, that the, the Gentiles were gonna hear the gospel and they were gonna respond. So now that time's come and instead of celebrating, you're questioning. Wrong posture. The second reminder is that he reminds them of the gift of the Holy Spirit for the Gentiles. Verse eight says this, God who knows the heart showed that he accept them by giving the Holy Spirit to them. In Jesus, we have this picture of Emmanuel, God with us, physically, amazing. Changes culture, changes history, it's changed everything. And then the Holy Spirit comes and it's the continuation of God with us. He fills our lives. And not only just, he's not, not only just with us, but as, as, we, as we believe, we're, we're baptized into uh, this family. We're baptized in, along with Christ and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And we join the mission of God as he's going to the ends of the earth. We're going, okay. And he gives us his power, but not only his power, just his power, he gives us his character. This love, this joy, this peace, this patience, all these fruits of the Holy Spirit, not the fruits of you or the fruits of me because those are insufficient. You know, when I would stand at the altar as a college pastor, I got to do a lot of weddings. <laughs> oh man, they're my least favorite. Just saying. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> weddings just aren't my thing. They're, they're great though. Uh, but he, but so you, you see here, and uh, I know, I know. I, just, I, just, I have a couple weddings this summer. I don't want to bum anybody out. But too late, it's already on uh, the internet. <laughs> and, and what happens, the, the bride and the groom, they sit there, right? And they, and, they, and they recite like, love is patient, love is kind, and love is all these things that I'm not going to be able to provide for you. But in this moment, it feels really good, doesn't it? <laughs> and everyone cries and weeps. And because, because the love of Jill Parker falls short, right? But 
If we paint it in the picture of this, no, 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 no. listen, listen, here's how it works, okay? This is covenant relationship. Uh, Joel, let me tell you about my daughter, Rachel. <laughs> She's amazing. I love her so much. I went to the cross for her, and I, I, I want to demonstrate my love to her and continue that. And guess what? I, I'm going to allow you uh, to become her husband, me? Like, <laughs> I live in the back of my Subaru, God. Are you sure you want to entrust your daughter with me? He's like, yeah, yeah. It, but listen, I'm, you're, you don't have to bear the burden of, of, you know, having to love this daughter. If I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And guess what? You keep your eyes fixed on me and you stay full of the Holy Spirit. I am going to nurture your wife and love your wife through you. That's my plan. Oh, it's freeing. It's amazing. And you can just stay a teenager in love for the rest of your life. But when you try to grab it and go, oh, i got to force this and i got to figure out how to love my wife. And I think, yeah, there's times when we have to cognizantly think about, you know, how we love our wives and our husbands. But we have to know that, man, this is how God's set it up. The same with joy. You don't have to fake it. No, be full of the Holy Spirit and God's going to demonstrate his joy. The joy that he has over you, he's going to demonstrate that in and through you. It's going to be a sign a demonstration of God's power that he talks about in Acts chapter 1, in and through you, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Those are the characters of God, not us. And he says, those are for the Gentiles too. Man, what a way to shake off the religiosity. Love and joy and peace and patience. That's, those are good stuff, man. That gets me excited. That doesn't get you excited. You don't have a pulse this morning, man. That's the Joel I want to be. That's the Joel I long to be. And so that's Peter's testimony. The second testimony we find in chapter 15, verse 12, and this is of Paul and Barnabas. And it says this, the whole assembly became silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And so Luke, the author of Acts, spares us the details because we'd already been reading along. We already know all the amazing things that have happened at the hands of of the boys going forward and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he makes Paul here, uh, oh no, so then we go on to James, sorry. Chapter 15, verse 13, we pick up and James takes the stand and he gets after it. Check this out. When they finished, James spoke up. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, as we know him, he uses his Hebrew name here. It's a nice little touch in this defense has described to us how God has first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I re will rebuild. I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things." that have been known, listen, for ages. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat, strangled, uh, from, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So his point is this. He's saying God has told us from day one. In fact, he quotes here from Amos and Jeremiah, something that this audience would be well familiar with. He goes, we've known about this for ages. Why is this taking you by surprise? We knew that the Gentiles were coming. We knew that they were going to come to Christ. 
And he goes, his, his conclusion is found in verse 19. So don't make it difficult for the Gentiles to receive and believe the gospel. Interesting. And so we have this very consistent reminder that it's the gospel that sheds and protects us from the religiosity, protects us from all the things that we're, are going to divide us over time. The gospel's the unifier. And again, Paul's the master at, at uh, describing the, gen, the gospel to us. And uh, to, in fact, let me just prove it to you. Turn to Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2, he, uh, in verse uh, 11, I'll just, I'll read this to you guys really quick, but it's, it's a phenomenal focused reminder of the gospel. Therefore, remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and called, so-called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that the time that you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship from Israel and foreigners and the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world, but, listen, there's always a good change. Now that Christ Jesus, who you once were far away from, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. There it is. Paul's going, remember, you're far off, but because of the blood of Jesus, you've been brought in. Continues, says, his purpose was to create in himself a new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but now citizens of God's people and members of God's household. What an incredible, incredible reminder by Paul, specifically to the Gentiles. He goes, man, remember the whole circumcision thing? Wasn't that crazy? He goes, remember when you thought you were far off, but the blood of Christ brought you in? The blood of Christ cleansing you of your sins? Not this ritualistic ceremonial thing that's from the law, but it's the blood of Christ that does that. Wow, that's incredible. And so it feels good when people personalize the gospel. But I think Paul doesn't just address them. He addresses us 2,000 years later just before that. If you've been to Bible school, you know that anytime there's a therefore in the Bible, you got to ask yourself, what's the therefore? Therefore. I just saved you like 20 grand in tuition. Bible college is cheap. <laughs> and so before that, in Ephesians 2, verse 1, Again, he's, he's writing to the church and he says this, and you, don't forget, were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You see, this is bad news, this isn't good news. This is bad news. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, saying this. There are some awful people in this world. And if we take a step back and we think about it, you know, Mark and I were just in Iraq, and there's some horrible atrocities that just make your stomach churn. And what this is saying is that, Joel, apart from Christ, you're no different. You think of pedophilia. You think of this sex slavery. You think of... I mean, I'm just the worst of the worst. This is the reminder that at the foot of the cross, it's all the same. It's all the same. And this is like, ah, really? 
This is, this is what you're reminding us of, but it doesn't stop there. The gospel never stops there. It, it continues, and the gospel is the good news. And the good news is right here in verse four. That's saying, be, never mind the fact that you lived according to Satan, you lived according to the rest of the world, indulging the desires of the flesh, by nature ugly and sinful and proud and arrogant and mean. Never mind all that. Check this out. God's action towards us. But God, he's not content with where you are at. He does something about it. Check this out. Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, this is what separates every other philosophy, every other religion, everything else that man could come up with. This is different. This is the gospel. This is counterculture. This is backwards. It doesn't make sense because in everywhere else, if you've got someone who's choosing to live in sin, who's living their life in this horrible reality of sin, wouldn't you just let them stay there and go, okay, man, you're good there. You see, at 18-year-old me, that was my reality. I wasn't convinced heaven was rad. I wasn't convinced God was rad. I was going to hell and I was happy going to hell. That was really where I was at, but God wasn't content with that. And so he reaches down into the bowels of hell and grabs me by my collar and raises me up and sets me and postures me in Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, what's significant about that? Everything, because just the fact that Christ is seated, it's, a, it's this picture that the work is finished. It's completed in Christ. Joel, you don't have to do it. And one of the things that made me not like God is because I felt that I had to do it. And he's gone, no, listen, your verses one through three apart from me, but with me, guess what? You're seated in the heavenly places. Salvation is a finished work. It's finished because my son did it. See, for an 18-year-old like me, and even a 40-year-old like me, that's good news. That is really, really good news. And it explains it here. But God, being rich in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ, and raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why would he do this, though? This is so backwards. Why would he go out of his way to rescue an 18-year-old who is rebellious against him and happy being rebellious against him? Why is he patient? Why is he loving? Why is he kind? Check this out. Verse seven, I think, answers this. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. That's an amazing explanation. And so that when you are sitting here and going, wow, look at this guy. Past college pastor at North Coast Calvary Chapel. That's amazing. Wow, he went to Iraq with Pastor Mark. Wow, that must have been amazing. Long flights, talking to the guru. That's incredible. He must have had a lot of information. You see, that's not, the, that's not the story. My story is verses one through three, but God radically saved me. I don't know why. He's loving, I guess. He's graceful, I guess. And the conclusion of that is that my life and my responsibility is to just be a demonstration of the goodness of God, nothing else. So when you look at me and go, oh, there's Pastor Joel. I go, no, 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 Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. <laughs> that's my name tag. That's what it should bear. That's, that's who I am. Don't give me some weird title. I don't call you Electrician Mike, so don't call me Pastor Joel. Well, let's leave our occupations out of this. Right? So, so our goal and our reality of moving 
forward in the gospel is just to be a demonstration of his grace and kindness towards us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Remember that. Not a result of works. You don't get to boast about it. Dude, our boastings are so silly in the grand scheme of things, aren't they? For his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him so that we would walk in them. Yeah, good works. We get to be a part of it, but it's propelled by the Holy Spirit. It's propelled by a surrendering and saying, yes, Jesus, I'm trusting you today. My politics aren't going to solve these problems. My theologies aren't going to solve these problems. It's, it's you who are going to solve these problems. This is your mission. And thank you for allowing me to join it and to be co-missioned with you. But this is your mission. Ah, oh, it's freeing for a guy like me. It's incredible. So that's the gospel. What an amazing thing. So what do we do with that? Well, back to Acts 15. Remember, Mark's testimony, and at the end of it, it says, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So as we begin to talk about the fellowship of believers, we look at verse 19, we go, this is great. Yes, this will be very unifying. But then verse 20 follows, check this out. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So he's saying, James is saying, we're not going to put them, uh, we're not going to put on them the rituals of the Jews except all these rituals of the Jews. And he gives them a big laundry list. Again, almost all of them minus circumcision. And so he says, abstain again from the polluted idols. Sexual immorality, which was very uh, prominent in the um, Gentile culture. And then meat of strangled animals and blood. Why? Why would he say to abstain from this? Because as Gentiles, you have complete freedom to partake in everything except the sexual immorality. So why would he say this? I think simply this is because he knew it would grieve the Jewish converts and further prejudice between the Jew and Gentiles. He's going, even though you can doesn't mean you should. It's like this. If you're hanging out with a bunch of vegans, right? You got a van load of vegans. And they're like, hey, what should we have for lunch? And you're like, Carl's Jr. sounds epic right now. <laughs> That's not wise. That's not discerning. And I think there's some wisdom here. And so we know that Christian community, healthy Christian community, is my rights being laid down for your good, right? I, th I think that's what it is. It's my rights being laid down for your good and for their good and for my family's good and for my neighbor's good and for my enemy's good. That's crazy, but again, if Paul were here, I think he would be turning this and going, how does the gospel get rid of all these extra things and bring it back to the simplistic truth that we're here to, not for us, <laughs> we're not the solution, but we're here for others, joining the mission of Jesus to seek and to save that which is lost. That's powerful, I think. This has been powerful for me. Philippians 2 addresses this in a, a very, very simple way. Paul here is talking and he's saying, listen to the church, if you want to make me happy, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
but in humility considered others better than yourselves. Each of you should not look only at your own interests, but also the interests of others. He says this, your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus. And as, as I always tell the college kids every week, I said, Jesus is never going to ask you to do something that he himself hasn't done himself. And so here's the explanation. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He's saying, listen, I understand you are a finite individual created person and for you to try to understand the complexities of an infinite God, there's a, there's a faith gap there. You're gonna have to just trust me on this, but Jesus is God. Verse seven, but made himself nothing. That's crazy. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Whoa, so this Yahweh, this, this God, this, this one who's created all things, creates something. It's kind of going funky. And so he enters that creation and dies by their hand in a complete sign and example of what true humility ought to look like. Jesus will never ask you to do something that he himself hasn't modeled. Humility. We see that solidarity is a result of humility. If we want to be one as a church, one as a people, one in our marriage, one with our neighbor, and even have inroads with our enemies, it starts with humility. It, it ends with humility. This is, this is it. You know, um, <laughs> it, in our politics, you know, we all have uh, leftist snowflake friends, right? Who, they want to raise our taxes so they can teach, uh, we start a policy to teach endangered fish how to read, and you're just going, no, you're crazy. Like, stop thinking, that's just crazy. And, the, you know, they defend it, and, and they got, all the, and then we also have our crazy conservative militant friends who are like, we need to arm our elementary kids with AR-15 so they can present, protect themselves against school shootings. And you're going, you're crazy. You don't need to start an army. Like, we have crazy ideas about how this world operates. And the gospel, <laughs> what it ought to do is truly bring us together. It tr should truly shed all those solutions and say, no, 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 the solution is Jesus. The solution is him coming, dying on the cross, being raised again, and inviting us into a relationship that is eternal. That's the solution, right? We all have crazy theological friends, right? We've got our crazy charismatic friends who are trying to like, by faith, raise chickens from the dead. And, uh, and then we've got our crazy conservative friends who are, you know, have, have no pulse, but they've read every book on doctrine out there <laughs> in their quiet, dark libraries, never making any impact in the world. So I'm obviously generalizing really huge and, and extremely here, but we all kind of find ourselves gravitating to, to and getting pulled one way or the other in politics and theology and all this stuff. And what I'm not saying is that you shouldn't vote and you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you know, consider doctrine and theology. No, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But as Paul always does, he brings it right back to the gospel every time. Because in this humility, as the Jews and the Gentiles were now needing to get along, the only thing that was really going to accomplish this was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. So in humility, you shed all those other solutions. You can have your ideas, but how are you displaying them to others? And is it a burden 
to others outside the church coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what hit me this week. If I still have a black eye, it's from the Holy Spirit. Because I'm so quick to offer up my solutions sometimes to the world's problems. And I'm so quick to forget that the gospel is the only true solution. That's it. And so the good news is is they sort this out and, you know, uh, people get along. In fact, it says this uh, back in Acts. It says that the people read this letter and they were glad for its encouraging message. And so we all live happily ever after, except in verse 36, there's some tension. You guys can read that on your own. But it's the church, man. You never get to completely get away from it. But the second missionary journey begins and it starts steamrolling again. And we all know that the gospel, thank God, lives on because here we are in Carlsbad, California, years later, and the gospel's reached us. Praise Jesus. That's incredible. That's incredible. So a couple practical applications from this text that I, I took away this week. First of all, don't forget the gospel. Ephesians 2, read it every day. Remind yourself that that's you, that's your story, and that's my story. The gospel will will repel religiosity and bad doctrine. It always will. Oh, people will always try to be latching things onto you. They've got the, they've solved the problems. They've figured it out, you know, and like, and sometimes that's us. We're, you know, we've solved everyone's problems and we're on Facebook letting people know about it. But the gospel is going to repel against all the funky stuff. <laughs> and here it repelled against, it, it calls them the party of the circumcision. <laughs> First of all, if there's ever a group that calls themselves the party of the circumcision, don't join it, man. That's weird. <laughs> don't do that. Thankfully, we don't have them anymore. Although there are some mom blogs who are all hot on the circumcision topic. You guys can go down that road on your own if you'd like. <laughs> but the gospel will also keep you on mission. How? Well, It reminds you that, man, you're not the solution. You're verses chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 through (laughs) 3. But the mission of Jesus is going to move forward, and he's going to use it. He's going to demonstrate his power in and through you. He's going to equip you with his Holy Spirit, and it's just going to sustain you. It's going to move you. He's going to open doors, and you get to walk through them in faith, and what an incredible journey. It's his mission, and he'll keep you on it. And secondly, so first of all, don't forget the gospel. Secondly, remember community is held together by humility. That's it. It's held together by humility. Humility sets aside your rights, your politics, theologies, solutions, philosophies for the good of others. Let's not get in the way of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Ryan and I work in college ministries and we are on the front lines sometimes with uh, kids who are, struggling to make sense of this world. And a lot of things that they're struggling with are the religiosities and the rules and the ideas that have latched onto the gospel and said, yes, that's us too. You can't, (laughs) Jesus would be a Democrat if he were alive today. Jesus would be a Republican. Jesus would believe this. And like, I think the gospel is to shed all that stuff away, get rid of it and fix your eyes on Jesus. That's it. And when kids can do that, man, they're, they're, spiritually alive. They could be become free, but when they're trying to figure out their lives through the lens of religiosity, they're like, no way, I'm out of here. And that's why we see so many college kids leaving the faith. It's, it's tragic. So as the church, and this isn't just for college kids, this is for everybody. Let's get out of the way. Let's get out of the way and in humility, be on mission with Jesus and watch Jesus transform our community, our church, our marriage, 
a relationship with our neighbors, because he's in the business of doing it, and we've got a phenomenal book that's articulating it beautifully. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We just pray, God, that it would take root. Pray that we would remember it this week, that we wouldn't forget your gospel, that we wouldn't forget to walk in humility. We thank you for setting the example of what true humility is. You laid your life down for us. I don't know why you did that, but I'm so thankful you did. I don't know why you love us, but I'm so thankful you do. I'm thankful that it's all a level playing field at the foot of the cross. I'm thankful that at the foot of the cross, uh, we all as humanity, as the church, get to see you. We thank you for what you accomplished at the cross. Thank you for rescuing me from the bowels of hell and placing me in the heavenly places in Christ. And as a church this morning, we say thank you. We believe in you. We trust you. We ask that you would be glorified today as we continue to worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.